And welcome, everyone, into the Wednesday morning edition of the TrojanSports.com podcast. I am Chris Morales. Message board show time. Galito! As we head into Saturday, 4 p.m. at the Coliseum against Oregon. A tradition. Well, not a tradition like any other. And, of course, we that means we're one week away from Washington. And that road trip up to Seattle. All right, thanks to modern technology, Chris Swanson, Adam J. Maya are here to answer all your questions from the message boards at Trojan Talk right there at TrojanSports.com. So while I take about, what are we ballparking this one? 90 minutes? Hour? Two hours? While I take some time off, the fellas are going to talk to you right now. Take it away, boys. All right. Uh, Welcome into another edition of uh, the Trojan Sports Message Board Show Q&A. I don't really know what we call this show, Adam, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, Obviously, I'm joined by uh, my good friend and co-worker, Adam Maya. Adam, how are you? Don't ask me. You don't care. I don't care. No one cares how Adam is, I guess. Um, okay, yeah, I, we'll just jump right into it then, yeah. I guess, since Adam Adam doesn't care how I am, and I don't care how <laughs> he is, obviously. Okay, so uh, yes, our first question comes from Bolster B7, a good friend of ours. Everybody's a good friend of ours, Adam. Uh, he asks... Our defense is really starting to perform at a high level besides producing zero sacks on 53 passing attempts. In your opinion, was this more scheme or player performance driven? Thanks. I'm actually going to give this one to myself because I, uh, it seems like I always just hand them to you, you know, when I, after I read them. Yeah, go for it. So I'll take this one. Um, I actually think against Cal... Uh, it was Cal's offense. I think that Cal's offense is designed uh, to make sure that people don't sack the quarterback. I think that's what it's all about. It's quick strike passing. Um, I think that's kind of their system. I think some systems are about running the ball or running clock or whatever, hurry up. And I think Cal is really about making sure that the quarterback doesn't get sacked because that kills that kind of offense. So I don't hold USC's lack of sacks on Cal against them. I think it's hard to to get sacks against Cal because the ball's just coming out very quickly after it's in the quarterback's hands. Yeah, that's partly true. Cal has not been sacked more than three times in any game, and that only happened on two occasions. However, their prior seven opponents had all recorded at least one sack, and the average was two. So for USC not to have one in 53 passing attempts, while it is designed that offense to avoid sacks, I would say it's more player-driven that USC had zero. They just don't have those types of horses on a defensive line or even an outside linebacker. Now, with that said, the front seven's playing good football. They're accomplishing what they want to. And they, they got a decent amount of pressure. And we saw... Cal couldn't move the ball too much in that first quarter and for a lot of the first half. So I wouldn't grade the the front seven low, but if we're looking at stacks, that's just not a strong suit of the USC front seven. We, in fact, we, we've seen quite a bit of pressure coming from uh, from the blitzes of maybe like a a cornerback or a safety. 
you know, we, we see them make uh, tackles for losses. So, really, I think it's about the entire defense. The way that Clancy Pendergast disguises everything, he's looking to use anybody as a, as a threat. It, it's not really going to come from where you think it would come or where it traditionally comes from. But with better pass rushers, you would you would get to the quarterback a little bit more than USC is. All right, I agree with you, Adam, because, uh, you know, obviously I, I, I don't consider USC's pass rush uh, to be among the best in the country. But and I think we also agree that Cal's uh, offense isn't the kind of offense that's going to allow you to get, you know, get those sacks either. So we're going to chalk that up as we kind of agree. Thank you, Bolster V7. I appreciate the question. We're going to move on to somebody that I think might be a, a first-time question asker. I'm pretty sure I haven't seen this name. Uh, DJR2132324. I think I got every number in there in the right yeah, sequence. Not? Yeah, thank you so much for asking a question. I'll, I'll never say your name again. Okay, uh, he or she asks... Why is Dom Davis not getting touches? Can you explain to me why Rojo was still in the game in the fourth quarter with 200-plus yards, but not Davis? Dom is the most explosive player on this team next to Dorian Rojo, but the coaches refused to give him touches at running back, wide receiver, and on special teams. He went off against Arizona when he got a few touches. Why not? Keep, why keep him on the bench against Cal? The kid should transfers, transfer if this continues. It's only going to get next worse next year when Carr comes in. Adam Maya, I will hand this one off to you. Yeah, I I don't get it either. We did ask Kelton about it, and he said that Ware and Rojo were hot. <laughs> and of course they were. Rojo went for over 200. Ware went, went over 100. But... Dom could have played. He played in the Arizona game. It was a very similar game. I know Cal scored a bit more than Arizona, but the game had been put away. I didn't understand why Darnold was playing at the end of the fourth quarter, why Rojo was playing. That's when you empty the bench. And I, I think that we're seeing a head coach who still getting his bearings with situations and not always fully aware. And so he might have felt differently late in this game because Cal had scored 24 points. But the game was over. They were up 21 points. Or I guess they were up 18 on their final drive before they made the field goal. But the game was so over. And I just think that Clay lost track. That's really what I chalk it up to. I think if he had to do it over, he would have thrown Dom in there maybe throughout the second half and especially on the final drive. Yeah, I, I think it was uh, mishandled, honestly. Um, because I I personally, you know, I think it's clear that he's not as good as Rojo and he's probably not as good as Alex Hedrick Ware. I get it. He might be, you know, clearly your third option but there's a point where in games like that you have to throw these guys a bone um, and let them play a bit 
And because it, it's just kind of a psychological thing. I think that if Clay Helton plays him at the end of blowouts, Dom Davis is thinking, there's going to be a role for me here if I stay long enough. He likes me. They just have a couple guys ahead of me. I'll wait my turn out and I'll get uh, some time. But when you're not playing at all, it really makes you question, at least in my opinion, because I would question it. Uh, does the coaching staff really like me? I mean, especially when it's a guy like him that, uh, like this uh, this poster mentioned, can move around and do some different things, and they have no role for him except in one blowout game. They let him go a little bit, you know? Yeah. And um, I, I think that, you know, even if he's clearly your third best option at running back, even if he's a guy that you feel like uh, you have other options and better options at receiver and on special teams and at running back, you, you they need him at least this season and probably next season looking at how uh, running back recruiting is going for them. They're not bringing in three guys, you know, this year. Um, so it, he, he kind of has a role on this team and they need him on this roster at least now and probably next year. So why not keep that guy happy? Because uh, if a, if a fan like DJR two one three two three two four is saying this guy should transfer, you know what is his family telling him? Because I'm sure Dom Davis and his family think very highly of his skill set and think he could be a feature guy anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm looking at the the drive chart from the game, and USC got the ball at the beginning of the fourth quarter. And it was only a three-play drive. They ran twice with Ware, and then there was an interception from Darnold. And then they got the ball right back, and they had this 12-play drive that only went for 22 yards, but it took up nearly eight minutes of the clock, which is exactly what they wanted to do. And they basically ran on every play with Rojo and Ware. But... That was that was the one. It was forty-five twenty-four, and and I I have a feeling that because they were they just given up a touchdown to to Cal. Actually, Cal had scored earlier than that, so they they stopped Cal on the drive before, but they gave him up a touchdown right before that to to make it forty-two twenty-four, and my guess is with it forty-two twenty-four, and there was you know ten minutes left in the fourth quarter. Clay thought it was still too early to unload the bench. But what he could have done is in the midst of his drive. That, that's where he could have probably, after a couple first downs, brought in Max Brown, brought in John Davis, um, brought in some of the other receivers. I, I just think that he was a, a little bit, I guess, paranoid, I guess, about the score and about how much time was left in the game. Because there were nearly 11 minutes left when USC began their final drive. And they gave the ball, they kicked the field goal with 240. So they they run the, the majority of the clock on that drive alone. But I'm with you. I I think a lot of people scratched their head and wondered why Dom wasn't playing. That was what I thought. That's what we were talking about, the people I was with during that game. Where's Tom? Where's Max Brown? So, anyway, Clay's I'm learning. With you. I, <laughs> I thought more of where's Max Brown, honestly. 
Yeah. I thought that was strange. I thought that was really I, I don't know if because uh, Darnold threw the interception, he didn't want to make a change after that because of the way that might look. Even though, again, they were up by 18 in the fourth quarter and he had already thrown five touchdowns, I think people would understand that Brown was coming in in relief, not because Darnold had been pulled. So. Yeah, you just don't want that guy to get hurt. That's the thing for yeah. me. But yeah. whatever, I'm making my own questions, so no, I don't no. want to do that. You're, you're exactly right. In fact, we're going to be we're asked about this later on, so we'll, we'll get into that that part of it oh, later perfect. about the injury thing. But you're, you're exactly perfect. right. Well, good. Thank, uh, thank you so much, DGR two one three two three two four. I appreciate nice. the question. I like the way that you pronounce it. I hope that. the fact that I've memorized his name gets him to ask a question every week. Okay, on to uh, a really a, a good old friend of ours. Uh, yeah, a close personal, Maybe Darren T. A best friend. One of our best friends who who kind of stole the show last week and, and was in the spotlight a bunch. I feel glad guilty. To see Darren I invited him to my. My son's first birthday. For as much as we <laughs> talked to Darren last week, I he should have been there. Darren, we only pick on you a little bit because you are actually our friend, and we appreciate the questions every week. And uh, he's got a few for us, uh, so here we go. Why not? Does it appear that the team, offense, defense, coaches, all believe Sam is a game changer and he can will them to wins? Why don't we just start there? Because that's question one, I believe. Okay. So um, I'm going to say yes, uh, undoubtedly. I actually felt like the team, and I was told this by a few people, that the team felt like Sam was a game changer before he was named the starter. And when he was named the starter, a lot of people on the team were happy about that and thought exactly uh, what Darren T's asking. Uh, that he can will them to wins. And it's happened. I, I know that the schedule has softened, and I've talked about that a lot, but he's been a big difference for them. So I completely believe that everyone on the team uh, thinks that Sam Darnold is a game-changer at quarterback and that the sky's the limit for him. Yeah, this can't be overstated. We talked to quarterback coach Tyson Hilton about this very topic after the Arizona game, and... I wrote about this in my latest tenfold column, but I'm going to read you the quote that he gave us. He said, In the history of football, the quarterback is what makes it go. I joke all the time. Everybody is better when you know your quarterback is going to lead you to victory. You know he's going to play well and give you a chance to win. So everybody's better. The whole team's better. The coaches are better. The secretary's better. The janitor's better. It just gives you a confidence level and that's what good quarterbacks do. They help the team to believe they can win, and he certainly brings that to the table. There's your answer. I, I really have nothing to add to that. It's clear that not just from changing quarterbacks, but because of the way Sam Darnold has played since taking over, has everyone believing they can win. And I think we're going to see that versus Washington. That's the game. That's the game where you, you, the Sam Darnold effect is put to the test, as uh, Chris Swanson noted in our earlier podcast this week. All right. Thanks for the first question, Darren T. Question two from Darren. 
Looking at the remaining games this year and all of next year's schedule, I'm glad you're looking, Darren, because I'm not, it's a good chance Washington will be the only top 10 team USC will face. Wow. That's one top 10 team in the next 15 to 16 games. So how can this team slash coaches prove themselves? Okay, Darren, I'm going to take your word for it, I'm guessing, because uh, I haven't looked that far ahead. I, I would personally just assume that they would face a, at least one or maybe even a couple top ten teams just because they play, you know, nine conference games in Notre Dame. I just feel like somebody's going to get there. But let's just assume that you're right. Um, I think it's a fair point. Um, I think it's a fair point because... Yeah, uh, that matters. It's a national perception when teams beat other teams with that pretty ranking. Um, The thing is, is that if USC wins enough, I don't really think it matters what the schedule is. I think that that will allow the team to prove themselves, even if people question them outside the program a bit or people like me question them a bit maybe because of a soft schedule. It's still USC with a particular record, and that means something, and that also means that they will probably, you know, play someone in a, in a conference championship game or a bowl game or at some point where there would be a prove-it game and we would find out, you know, what the team is. So I just think that with USC's schedule, with their name brand, um, they'll get a chance to prove themselves eventually uh, if they're winning. Well, there's no one-word answer to all of this. Win. That's how you do it. You win. Look at USC's schedule in 2004 when they went undefeated and won the national title. They only had one top 10 opponent prior to the national title game. That was Cal. And then the following year when they went undefeated in the regular season... They had one top 10 opponent, Notre Dame. So it's really irrelevant whether they face another top 10 team. You might not always get that in the Pac-12. And if Notre Dame isn't in there, then that's probably it. Alabama's not usually on the schedule. They're going to have Texas on the schedule. Texas is not going to be in the top 10. That's not where they're at right now. So, their schedule's fine. It, it's hard enough. They play nine conference games. They play Notre Dame. That, that right there, that, that 10-game schedule already puts them in the upper, I want to say, upper, like, quadrant of the country. That's already a top 25 schedule nationally. Whether the Pac-12 is down or not, just because they're playing nine, because none of the nine are horrible. There might be a couple that are just mediocre, but, but none of them are one-win, two-win teams. So by playing nine conference games and with a good three or four of them usually rank in the top 20, and then you add Notre Dame, then you add another FBS school or two, two FBS schools, but another Power 5 school uh, to your, your other non-conference game, they always play one of the harder schedules in the country. And I don't even like the narrative that they have an easy schedule now because 
the Pac-12 is down. Because you're, you're only putting down the program by saying that. It, go look at the SEC and look at some of the teams that that these schools play. They're, they're not even in FBS. They're FCS opponents. And then you got a few of those schools in the SEC at the bottom of the conference that are really, really bad and would not compete with Arizona or Oregon State, who I'm saying are the two worst teams this year in the Pac-12. So, just, I, I don't understand the need to to devalue the Pac-12. I, I'm, it's not a strong year for the conference. We're, we're, not, we're not saying that it is, but even when it's down, it's still a tougher conference, and because of the fact that they play nine, and USC goes uh, half and half, home and road, they never play eight home games and four road games, which is another normal thing for a lot of uh, these other conferences. Their schedule is legitimate every year. So they prove themselves by winning. That's all they got to do. I don't care whether they beat a top five team. If they can go undefeated, then they themselves are a top five team. Completely agree. Question three from our good friend Darren T. Chuma hasn't played in three of the last six games. Seems like your sources are right again. Chuma might not be back next year. Oh, our sources are always right, Darren. <laughs> our Tucker commit and Jackson recruit, he's, he's referring to Elijah Vera Tucker and Austin Jackson, by the way, good enough to start as freshman tackles. <laughs> I'll take. Should I take this one? I well, guess I should. Um, talk. Okay, Tucker and Jackson. I, I would say you know who knows because they're high end recruits. So there's always that chance. And I think that if they did end up starting, that people would would pass it off as they are good enough to start because I've seen that happen uh, before at various programs or five star just or four star guy somebody like that is inserted at a spot because it's an absolute need and they need to be there and people kind of play it off like they're incredibly special um, I don't see them as guys where I watch them and go oh I want them starting at a college program next year I don't think that about either one of them I, I wouldn't feel comfortable if I was a coaching staff and I had to rely on either one of them uh, to play at tackle, uh, let alone start. But I do think that they're both really good players and could be really good tackles at the college level eventually. Yeah, if one of them is starting next year, then something probably went wrong. And probably a couple things went wrong. They needed EJ Price. They need Chuma Joda to stay. They need tackles. Right now, I couldn't tell you with Chuma come. Let's say Chuma's coming back. I couldn't tell you who's going to start opposite him. I don't know if Chuma would be on the right or the left, and I don't know who the other tackle would be. And if Chuma leaves, then. 
add another guy. You, I don't know who either of the starting tackles are. You do not want true freshmen starting on the line, especially at tackle. And a big reason why EJ Price ultimately moved on was because they didn't play him. If they would have thrown him in there at the end of the Alabama game or at the end of the Utah State game when that game was out of hand, when they had Chris Brown playing left tackle, or even at the Stanford game, which for all intents and purposes was decided when Sam Darnold came in midway through the fourth quarter with the Trojans down by 17. They had three chances there to play EJ Price, and they didn't do it. And now he's gone. I think if he had appeared in one of those games, then he's not transferring. So, I think they made a mistake with an out-of-state kid who probably wasn't comfortable, but was also frustrated about not seeing the field. Uh, and, you know, he was there for three games, and all three of them, they were, they were blowouts. They just, there was time to bring him in. I think he understands that he wouldn't be starting, but, you know, I, I think back to the, uh, the Utah State game at the Coliseum with USC leading by about 40, and Shuma Doga's already been thrown out of the game, and Chad Wheeler is coming off an injury. He didn't start that game because of it. And so he ended up playing a lot of that game. EJ Price is just watching and waiting and wondering. I I don't know yet with their other underclassmen that they've been using at tackle whether they're ready because they don't really play either. I mean, if Schumann's not playing, then those guys aren't playing. We've just been seeing Banner and Wheeler. And the Lions playing good football. So, I'm not complaining about this, but there's a lot of politics involved. And when, when games are out of hand, this is when you throw in some of these guys and you get a look at them and you, you need to get some film on them. Not, not practice film. You need to get game film on these guys, and they're not doing it. And uh, it, it is hurting them. So I think that the offensive line is going to be a huge question mark, at least at the tackle position next year. But m maybe Chuma comes back. You know, that we've been told oh. that he's likely not going to, but. It's still October, and uh, while that decision would probably be finalized right after the season, there's still time between now and then. So, uh, there, there's obviously something going on. Shuma did not play, as was mentioned in question, for the third time in six games. Clay Helton said that he had uh, violated a team rule. He would not say what it was. Not good. Well, there you go. Straight from Adam's mouth. Thank you, Darren T.
for the uh, for the questions, and we appreciate you uh, letting us pick on you a little bit. It's always fun when people have good humor about that. Well, we don't even Moving know. On we, s- we haven't heard him. Well, I guess he did write back last week. He had good, he he had good humor about it. Okay, That's you're why right. I'm picking on him again. Yeah. That's what you know. I, I wouldn't I, do it again. Okay. Well, if we kind he of didn't. Did. Okay. I kind of did. Okay, so um, going on to someone else who uh, enjoys it when we pick on them a little bit. Trojan Fan 68 our good friend, Nick from Cyprus. Hi, everybody. This is Nick from <laughs> Cyprus. Hi, Nick. Roll call slash shout out are the same as every week before in the past, LOL. I'm kind of disappointed. What? Uh, Nick, in case you're uh, in, in case you're joining us for the first time, Nick always gives a huge long shout out to everybody. He uh, he skipped it this week, so yeah, whatever, I'm whatever, thankful. Nick. Thank you, Nick, for not doing that. Okay, okay. Well, anyway, on to his question. Question: Is Sam Darnold the Clay Helton savior? Adam, go for it. Yeah, I mean that's a big part of it. <laughs> He's not, he's not alone in that, but that's kind of the beef that Swanson had with the quarterback change initially. Because if they don't make that change, what is their record right now? It might be five and three. <laughs> you know, it, it very well might be five and three. We, we can't say that it wouldn't be. I don't know that. I'm, I'm not being definitive. I'm not promising you it'd be five and three. But it might be five and three. And and then maybe people are hanging on to what happened versus Alabama and Stanford a little bit more than they actually are now. A lot of people have I think forgiven that. Not everybody. But you know, it's all about perception. And the perception is Clay made this smart, shrewd, timely move to change quarterbacks. And now the program is back on track. You know, to the point where people feel like the Utah game was a victory almost. You know, Donald's starting five games and people might think he's 5-0. and oh, He's 4-1. and one, Or USC's 4-1 and one with him as a starter. But it feels like 5-0. and oh because he played well in that game and they played better than they had before and then they won four in a row. So that game gets lumped in with the wins. So that's my long-winded way of saying that he is a bit of a savior. But at the end of the day, Clay's going to have to win more games. So this probably bought him another year. I don't. I don't know that it it keeps them secure for the long term. Ultimately, you're going to have to win more than eight games at USC. You're going to need to get to the Rose Bowl and win the Rose Bowl and compete for a national title. And that just remains to be seen. So I think Darnold extended the leash more than anything. Yeah, um, you know, I'm not even going to answer this question because I basically have an oil painting of Clay Helton giving Max Brown the kiss of death uh, 
uh, in my living room. So you guys know how I feel about this. So Nick, thank you for the question, but I think Adam's answer uh, did it justice. So I'll take the recruiting one, Adam. How about that? Um, he asks, uh, where do we believe Greg Rogers will commit to? I'm going to say USC. Um, I'm going to say USC because I know Greg Rogers has been high on USC for a long time. And also, a little note for those that don't pay, I'm going to reference Scott Schrader. Scott Schrader seems very confident that USC will get Greg Rogers. So if you don't pay, that's a little you know, inside pick for you, I guess, for free. So enjoy it. So Scott saying Greg, I'm going to roll with Scott. I'm going to say Greg as well. USC. What am I talking about? Greg's going to USC. So that's what I'm thinking. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Nick, uh, <laughs> for that. Um, let's move on, I guess. Uh, Free Lane K, my favorite username on the board, possibly. <laughs> I, I think definitely. Uh, after being pulled numerous times in the last game, do you expect a reduced snap count? In the future for Iman Marshall, and if so, who do you see taking over uh, some of those snaps? I'm going to jump on this one. I, I don't see uh, Iman Marshall getting a reduced snap count. I think he got pulled because of a penalty situation. I think the coaches just want to talk to him. On the sidelines, that happens. I don't think they're going to reduce his snap count. I actually think uh, Iman Marshall is incredibly underrated at this point. I think the fans are way too harsh on him. I think he gets targeted a lot because USC has one of the best cornerbacks in the country on the other side. And they're not going to throw it at a Dory Jackson, so who are they going to throw it to? I think Amal Marshall's been doing very well, and I don't expect USC to uh, reduce his role. I think he's their best option at cornerback outside of a Dory Jackson. Yeah. Because of that fact, I don't know that they can dramatically reduce his snaps. They might rotate a little bit more, and... Maybe they feel like there are certain coverages and situations that he's not best suited for, and maybe they bring in a guy. But I don't think they have a third guy established yet. Jonathan Lockett has done a pretty good job as a, a slot corner. You know, a nickel corner, but he he's been getting banged up in a lot of these games as well, and he hasn't been able to finish them. And then they have a Jane who is still learning that position and had a better game versus Cal, but he's had his growing pains, and I don't think he's necessarily ready to to take over and and be a a full-time guy and, and start opposite Adore. I think what people really want and what they're waiting for is Jack Jones. And they don't think he's ready. If, if they did think that, then he would be next. But he's behind the other two guys I just named. So I couldn't tell you whether he's ready or not. Because of his high school pedigree, people believe that he would be better than Biggie. <laughs> Even though he's a year younger and hasn't played. 
very much go. We just don't know that. It could be true. And he did play in a, a, I guess the latter portion of the Cal game. I saw him out there more than usual. And that's the time to play him. So I'll check in with the coaches and see how he fared, how they, how they feel he fared with a little bit more playing time. And I, I think that the penalties are, are starting to pile up for Biggie. So that, that's why the question being asked, I understand. And it's, it's a legitimate concern. I, I just think that if they, if they knew they had another guy to, to play alongside of him or even ahead of him, then they would have done it already. But I don't think it's fair. I mean, you have to remember, Biggie played in front of Kevon Seymour last year, which I didn't agree with, and I, I didn't quite understand. But while that was a different staff, Clay was there, and he's involved in the, the personnel decision. And I just, I, I only really bring it up to remind you that these coaches see Biggie in a much different light than maybe a lot of the fans do. So, I, uh, I, I understand, I understand what the fans are, are seeing at times with him. And I think at cornerback, the negative can stand out much more than the positive. Unless you are intercepting a pass every game. And Biggie has a couple, but, it, you know, that's not happening. So, I think people are are kind of keen in on maybe if he gives up a 15, 20-yard completion or commits a pass interference. But he did not give up any huge plays in this last game. At least not that I remember. And I don't think he's uh, part of the problem. I think he's part of the solution. So that, that's where I stand on it. It's becoming unpopular. People want to see him limited. But I, I actually think that he's above average and going to get better. Agreed. It's weird. I never would have thought five-star Biggie Marshall would be that guy, but whatever. Um, thank you for the question, Freelane K, and thank you for your username. Uh, on to Trojan Shmoo, another good friend of the show. A guy that's defended me a lot on the message boards, too, so I have to love him. Uh, okay, Trojan Shmoo says... Adam and Chris, on your last podcast, you spoke about some of our running backs and who is the best, most recent, not including Lendale and Reggie. I remember that. Can yeah. we have a breakdown of who podcast. are the top? It was. That's why I remember it. If it was two weeks ago, I wouldn't have. Can we have a breakdown of who are the top five wide receivers of all time at USC? I'm going to screw this up. I'm not sure how far... Uh, back we should go, perhaps Curtis Conway to present. Uh, sure, why not? Feel free to swap players from the past to different future teams and future teams to past. You, okay, whatever. I don't know what that means. Um, 
yeah, so top five, I guess. Adam, help okay. me make this list. <laughs> All right, well, let's be clear on what we're ranking because uh, there are many ways to do it. I'm going to make my five based on if I could essentially drop them to my my team. Not so much for the NFL, but I guess my college football team. Okay? I'm, I'm, I've okay. watched them play, obviously, for USC, and now I'm drafting them to my college football team. So I'm getting that guy in college. So I'm not going to pick the... I'm not going to rank them on just the most productive is number one and second most productive is number two. It's not going to go like that. I'm going to go with who I think are the five best. Okay? That's how I'm going to list them. So it's challenging because that's been a a position that not enough people maybe talk about or maybe USC doesn't get enough credit nationally for what they've churned out. But... I think you'd be hard-pressed to find another university since the 90s that has had more talent at receiver than USC. There's probably about 12 guys that could be in this top five. So, here's my top five. Okay, number one, Keyshawn. Number two, Mike Williams. Number three, I would take Robert Woods. That's probably where the where the debate will really begin. Number four, I would take Dwayne Jarrett. And then number five, I would take Marquise Slee. And then there's a honorable mention, which is a bit long. And I'm talking about Johnny Morton. Curtis Conway, Kerry Colbert, uh, Steve Smith, Nelson Aguilar, Juju Smith-Schuster, and uh, even who uh, Trojan Shmu mentioned, R.J. Stoward. All those guys were very, very good, some of which were All-Americans, and so it wasn't easy to leave anybody out, but again, if I'm just drafting them from USC to play on my team in in, in college, then I'm, I'm like I said, I'm going Keyshawn, Mike Williams, Robert Woods, Dwayne Jarrett, Marquise Lee. What about you? Yeah, we have the same uh, players, which I, it makes me wonder order? if we were. Not in the same order, okay. but it makes me wonder if we were older, if we would feel differently. Well, um, I know where, where my where my list comes from, but give your list, and then we'll talk about that. Okay, it's Keyshawn, Mike Williams, uh, Dwayne Jarrett, uh, Marquise Lee, then Robert Woods. Okay. That's, uh, I think Keyshawn's kind of obvious. I think Mike Williams is obvious, too. Yeah. Uh, to me, Dwayne Jarrett uh, jumps out because I feel like he was a part of an offense that featured so many other people. And I felt like he was kind of like 
Mike Williams if the career had gone on. That's kind of how I felt like. Yeah, he got him, the third year. He, exactly. That's that's what I felt like he was at the time. Um, when Lee and Woods came around, I felt like the offense was featured more around them. Yeah. So in a way, that hurts them in my eyes because I feel like their numbers are more inflated. produced. Yeah. But I still, I, looking at them and what they were athletically, it still just makes me want to place them over a lot of these other guys that are on the list. And maybe that, you know, that's not fair um, because it's different era stuff. Um, you know, I'm sure that some people will be screaming for a, a bunch of guys that we didn't mention. I don't even know if you've mentioned Lynn Swan. No, no, well, I, we started list. with the 90s. Oh, we did. That's yeah. right. I'm sorry. Um, okay, so, um, yeah, that's kind of where my list comes from. I put Lee over Woods. Just basically, I, it's kind of based on Kiffin's bias for Lee, honestly. Um, mm. They're so even. I get where you're coming from because I feel like Woods might be uh, maybe the the headier player, the more NFL-ready player because of that. But I feel like the fact that Kiffin thought Lee was a better athlete, you know, and, and seemed yeah. to lean towards him more, kind of sticks out in my mind and sure. makes me feel like he should be higher on the list. So that's where I'm coming from from there. And I think I explained all of our differences. Yeah, um, well... Right there. I, I noticed after making a list that um, I was leaning toward possession guys. And maybe they're not as exciting, but it, it goes to show that this is really going to be uh, it's obviously subjective, but it's a matter of taste. It's what you look for and what you value in a receiver. And for me, it's moving a chains, you know, and making like, uh, like catching the ball and and being reliable, being available, and, and you know, being a good target. And like you know, Keyshawn. He was really good after the catch. He would go over the middle. He did a little bit of everything, but he obviously wasn't wildly explosive. Um, and we, we saw that more in the NFL. In college, he was pretty explosive, and he had some huge games, especially in his two bowl performances. But you wouldn't characterize him as an explosive receiver. And, and really, you wouldn't with Mike Williams either even though he would he would do a lot after the catch because of how big he was. But ultimately, these guys are... They're not downfield guys. And Robert Woods, whole different makeup than Keyshawn and Mike, but but also you would look to be more of a, a possession guy. And I like that. And one of my favorite receivers ever is Larry Fitzgerald who can be dynamic, or at least in his younger days, was a dynamic guy and can make a lot of acrobatic, acrobatic catches. But my favorite thing about him is that if it's 3rd and 7 or even 3rd and 11, you know, that, that's who I'm looking for. And he'll find a way. He'll, he'll find a, a crevice in, in a defense, you know, like a little pocket and, and make himself open. And you can pretty much throw it in his neighborhood, and he'll come away with it. That's what I want. I, I, you know, I, I take more out of that than I do 
maybe a guy able to run a 40-yard streak, you know, go. Uh, I understand why people would put Marquise higher. Some people might even put Marquise above all of them. He won the Blitnikoff. Hard to argue with that, right? But I will. Yeah, but that that's just not that's not I guess what what stands out to me or what means much to me. So if, if we're looking at production, Marquise was definitely more productive than Robert Woods, but I think Robert Woods was the better receiver. And I was only looking at that. I wasn't factoring in the the return portion of it. I thought that was a whole different thing. Uh, I would obviously vault Marquise. Um, and so, but I want to add on a question to this, though. I want to know if you feel like Juju can crack this top five, uh, assuming that he finishes this year and that's it. Well, not, not giving him a fourth year. None of these guys had a fourth year so. either. So it, it's kind of fair that way. But let's say he just finishes the year. Depending on how it goes, could he make your top five? I don't think so. No. I just remember, and I don't know if it's necessarily his fault. I just, with the other guys, it well, seemed you had, like there was... You had was Robert a, Woods at five, right? <laughs> you don't even remember. Yes. Yeah, you had Jarrett three, and I yes. think Marquise four, Robert five. Yeah. So... Depending on how Juju finishes, could he surpass Robert Woods for you? No, and I'm going to tell you why. Okay. Is that with these guys, and even Lee and Woods, uh, to an extent, I, it just felt like there were times, the fact that they they won something more, and even you know with Woods and Lee, it's that, you know, whatever that 10-win season, you know, which is kind of minimal in USC history, but it just felt like, to me, that that weighs in a bit. When I think of Dwayne Jarrett, I think of the Rose Bowl where he went and he just went yeah. off and he was insane. It's like, oh, he's the best player in the Rose Bowl. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Woods and Lee had that Oregon game, had the UCLA fifty to nothing. They had moments where it seemed like is USC maybe one of the best teams in the country, and because of that, are they maybe the best offensive because player of in the country? Guys. Right. Exactly. Uh, Mike Williams, honestly, I thought he might have been the best player on, on the team when he was yeah. on the team. And, that's that, so that, that, Remember that? Yeah. He said that, um, that was the best player that he played with, Reggie included. So that fact, I mean, Juju maybe is the best player on this team. I, you know, I, I would probably lean towards Adore Jackson. Um, but Mike Williams, you know, maybe being the best player on a team that – you know, won the national championship and then, you know, and then as a freshman being a key player in a team that was maybe the best in the entire country at the end of the year, that means more to me. So Juju, I mean, it, USC would have had to win something big in, in my mind and he would have had to help lead them there to crack this list. I'm not sure if that's necessarily fair. It's just how I feel. Yeah, I, I get it. It's probably not, but I do understand your rationale. And I guess if I'm asking myself the question, I lean on a lot of the same premise that USC would have to finish on a major run and Juju would have to lead the way 
And when you're a receiver, you're not always in control of that. But if they were to maybe win out and Juju exploded like he's totally capable of over the final month and, you know, a, a Pac-12 title game or a bowl game, then I guess I could see him in the in the discussion with with Marquise Lee. Even though again Marquise won the Blitnikoff, I, I don't think Juju is really in that conversation because of the way that the year started for him. I am curious I I do wonder what his numbers would look like if Darnold had played the whole year. I I know that they'd be better. I just don't know how much better because Darnold and Juju have a better rapport than Brown and Juju had. So, the season looked a bit lost for him early on, and and he's come back with a vengeance. But for him to crack the all-time USC top five seems like it it might be out of reach. But uh, you know, we'll we'll talk about it when we get there because uh, you know. It's better, it's better to judge that kind of thing when you're seeing their full body of work. And Juju's still a Trojan, so maybe it changes. Maybe he comes back for a fourth year. Then he'll own every USC record. So we, we would probably view him much differently if that were to happen. But I, if I'm looking at them, like I said, my original, my original premise was uh, who, who I'd be drafting to my team to play in college football um, based on what I saw from them at USC, I would pick these guys ahead of Juju. Um, however, I-, I like this one thing. Juju, who I expect to leave after this year, if he does, he's going to be drafted ahead of where Marquise went, where Dwayne Jarrett went, where Robert Woods went. And maybe where Nelson Aguilar went. Mike was in the top ten. Keyshawn was number one. I don't think he'll he'll be in the top ten, but I think he's going to be outside of it in the first round. And uh, Nelson Aguilar is the other one that, that went in the first round, but these other guys went in the second round. So it is a different animal, the NFL, and Juju could prove to be a better NFL receiver than he w- than these guys were and than he was himself in college. That could happen. Look at you just covering every angle of that. Yeah, Don't I want be. people to think I'm hating on Juju. I'll hate on Juju. Do you remember RJ Stoward? Or is that just too young for you? I was too young. Okay. Let me tell you, uh, because I don't know if there's much of him on YouTube. I should look, but I I haven't. He was a... He he wasn't a big receiver, but he was a bigger version of Adoree. And he played receiver. So if you can imagine that. uh, He was unguardable. He he was just... He was unguardable. (laughs) He had a lot going on. And, and, you know, he, he had a hard time. Uh, and so it's unfortunate that 
we get to see the best of him or that he wasn't able to put it together on a week-to-week basis. But his his ceiling might have been higher than than any of these guys. I don't know. I, I, I seem to remember he had a bit of an issue holding onto the ball at times. So that's a major... Yeah, that's a, a major problem for a receiver. That's that's just like a, a cardinal rule that you have to catch the ball. If you if you're not catching the ball all the time, then you know you can't be considered among the best. But he really was a remarkable player. You're talking about him the way I'm going to tell youngins like Drew about uh, Mike Williams. So. He must have been good. Yeah, I mean they're completely different styles, but I get it. Yeah, but but dominant. But, but yeah, and Mike Mike brought it. Uh, Mike Mike brought it. You know, almost every game that he played in. Where can was I R- just tell you R- that was in and out? What happened? Well, Mike. First of all, I have no idea how he didn't make it in the NFL. Like it just doesn't make any sense to me. The other thing is, is that I obviously love Dwayne Jarrett. He's number three on my list. The gap between him and Mike Williams is so wide that it's like unbelievable to me, and I love Dwayne Jarrett. That's how yeah. much I think. Well, and of Dwayne Williams. was a lot more productive because he got that third year, but yeah, Dwayne was just a level below Mike. He Mike is one of the best receivers I've ever seen. And the funny thing about Dwayne is that he actually, if they were built, I mean, they were you know they they had about the same height, and uh, the size wasn't drastically different. Mike was heavier. But Dwayne was a more athletic version. And, and that kind of goes to show you that being more athletic doesn't make you better necessarily. Because Dwayne could make some catches. You know, he could get downfield and he could make these one-hand catches and uh, and diving, you know, and, and rolling. and um, So naturally he was compared a lot to Mike Williams. I remember that conversation. All the time. And he was more athletic. But there was just something about Mike. He had a, an aura where he was just so dominant and so physical. And you, you couldn't handle him. Like, no no one could deal with him. Yeah. Yeah. Fun talk. Thank you, Trojan Schmoo, for the for letting us talk about something a little bit different, I guess, than our typical, you know, season nonsense or whatever. Yeah, he, I want to say you could probably talk me into Mike being better than Keyshawn. Keyshawn was my boyhood idol, and that's probably why, or a, a, a part of the reason why I put him at number one. He really carried the team. He carried the the whole offense. He played on a couple of just so so teams and made them great. So. Um, that impact that he had was uh, was really obvious. Where with Mike, you know, he's playing with Reggie and and Lendell, even though they were true freshmen. And Matt Liner, I mean, the team is loaded. The team is loaded on defense. So they probably win without Mike, but they win a lot more and win by a lot more with him. So. Um, Mike was a was an amazing player. They they both they both are up there. 
I, I, I think they are. I, you can't talk me out of them being one and two. You know, I, I feel like no. if, if you're saying that, if that's not your one and two, then I guess I, from there on, I, I don't really <laughs> care about your list. I completely agree. Yeah. All right. Excuse me, I hiccuped. I like how you, uh, you're you familiar with Keyshawn, but not RJ, even though RJ played after Keyshawn. But I I, well, <laughs> I'll just tell you that the, the reason I, I picked Keyshawn number one, and it's very obvious, is that he had those games like that. I think it was the Con Bowl or whatever. Yeah, the Rose Bowl. It's like he had like hundreds and hundreds of yards, and then he led them to the Rose Bowl. Yeah. That year, where they really had no business being a Rose Bowl team, somehow they were, and I just know he's the guy. He's the guy that everybody says is number one. To me, Mike Williams, I don't know how you could be much better than that. So yeah, in college, for sure. It, it that's that's just my. I, I I don't even think Marquise Lee or Robert Woods or Dwayne Jerry. There's been nobody that I've watched no, since Mike Williams that I thought was yeah. yeah anywhere near him. Yeah. So that's all. Thanks again, Trojan Schmoo. Okay, we'll move on. On to Alex Bow. Another good friend. Everybody's a good friend. First off, thank you for your hard work and a shout-out for a post at 4.20 in the morning. Wow, good job, Adam. Get to sleep. <laughs> anyway, I am interested if there is any update on Noah Jefferson. Oh, the Noah Jefferson question. It would be great to get both Justin Davis and Noah back for the Washington game. Hey, I... I think USC fans agree. Thanks. No, thank you, Alex Bo. Adam Meyer, please. Yeah, well, Clegg said for some time that they were hoping to get Noah back in November. And uh, that's basically now. And we record this, it's October 30th. We talked to Clay on Friday night the 28th, about Noah. And he said that right now he's working with the strength and conditioning staff. And it sounded like he had been for some time. And uh, Clay said, we'll see where we are after this week. Here's the thing. We haven't seen him at practice. And that has to happen. Now, he probably is good to go in terms of his shoulder. He had a shoulder strain. He suffered that in the Alabama game, but that wasn't expected to keep him out for very long. So he's missed an extended period for reasons beyond the shoulder. And they're personal. They're private in nature. So it's not really something that I'm privy to talk about. But it's encouraging that Helkin would say that we're going to see where he's at after this week because he could have announced that he's not coming back this year. Now, I I've been told that it's unlikely that he would come back this year. and, and But Helkin's not saying that. So, you know. He knows more than I do, and I guess there's a chance. But until we see Noah back in practice, you know, we can't even give you a timeline. Um, and he, he probably is working himself back into shape. Uh, it, it's hard on, on any player when they're off the field 
for that long. Even if they are taking care of themselves and working out on the side, you don't have the same timing and you're not going to be sharp in terms of your techniques, things of that nature. Um, so hopefully Noah's in a good place and he can just come back onto the practice field and, and maybe after a couple weeks. But I would say it's a long shot that he would play Washington. Um, I, I'm thinking more like the bowl game. You know, uh, maybe the end of the year. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm overestimating it or underestimating it. I'm not sure what would be the correct term there. But maybe he could come back for one of those final two games. But I would just think it's more likely that he would actually play in the final game. And, and even if he did, it's not like he's going to come in and start, you know, the first game and and be a full-time player. It, it, it's not, it's not, he's not in the same place that Justin Davis is at, you know, because it, the, the question was asked and the mention was made about Justin. When Justin's ready to play, he's going to assume a big role and, and very well could start the first game that he's ready to go. Because he, you know, he had a, a hiccup. But Noah, Noah had more. And so, um, you know, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm hoping for Noah that, again, like I said, that, that he would be able to get back on the field by the end of the year. But do not expect him to be in that Washington game. Well, thank you, Adam. You're I'm going to take that answer um, and just run with it because I, I noticed that there's a, there's a dead horse in the corner. It's really bloody, and you've been beating on it for 20 minutes. So no need for me to beat on that horse, too, right? Yeah. Good update. Thank you, Alex Bo, for the question. Appreciate it, as always. We're on to uh, Ten Deuce Trojan, who I think is Ten Deuce Trojan because he, said, he says, Yo, big thanks for pronouncing my name right on the last podcast, LOL. I say that because it's the first time we've ever pronounced it that way. So I think that's his username, Ten Deuce Trojan. Okay. So Thank he says, you. Okay, let's... I'm sorry. So he says, okay, let's get to it. So we're going to get to it with him. When Nwusu got hurt and went out of the game, did you notice when we moved Rasheem Green out wide to D-end with Fatu and Stevie Tolikovatu inside that we started getting more pressure on the quarterback? I did not notice that, actually. Um, but good observation. If you had to pick a third down and long defensive line package to get pressure on the QB, who would you guys pick? My four would be Green and Buda Tucker outside with Fatu and Stevie inside. Thanks, guys. Oh, um, I like I'm going to go. I know. I'm, I'm going to go, Okay. actually. Okay, so on the... Uh, let's see here. On the outside... Um, I'm going to stick with Uchenna, actually, and I'm going to put Buddha uh, on one end as well. I'm going to borrow Buddha Tucker really? from him. Yes, and I'm going to put Rasheem Green on the inside with uh, Porter Gustin. I'm going to move him inside because this is a pressure package. And so I'm going to give Stevie T a rest uh, 
okay. on third down because I think he needs to rotate out. So I put Rasheem in for him because I feel like he's a little bit he's a little bit less of a nose and more of a you know DT type, so you can get away with that on the pressure. I move Porter inside because I feel like he's like defensive end type body anyway. Um, so that would kind of work out, and then try to get two smaller guys on the outside for speed purposes. Yeah, that's what I'm going with. Yeah, gosh, I, I'm having a, I'm kind of stumped here. Um, it's a great observation that Tengu Trojan made. Fatu brings more of a pass rushing element to his game, and and then Rashim, I think, is better on the end as well. So, you're it's like you're adding two pass rushers when you bring in Fatu and you move Rashim outside, but. I probably would stay with DBT, even though uh, people that know more than I do tell me that while he's been fantastic versus the run and has been a, a huge addition to the defensive line, is uh, not the greatest at rushing a quarterback. So I don't I don't feel like they have another guy that belongs inside available. I mean, they, it's unfortunate. They just, they really needed Kenny Bigelow. So, I would probably keep Fatu and Stevie Key inside, and then I would have Rasheem and Porter if, if I'm picking four, if that's the alignment that we're going with. Okay. Yeah, but that really would benefit, I think, from another inside lineman. I feel like they're one or two short. You know, and they have been. Yeah, I'm yeah. with you, man. I'm yeah. with you. Well, thank you, Adam, for that answer. Thank you, you Tendu's Trojan. But I, I'm going to thank you every time. Okay. And thank you, Tendu's Trojan, for the question. Do I have to thank the person every time they ask? Yeah, yes. you can thank them. Yeah, well, might as well thank you as well, Adam, for being a member of our show. Exodus1 asks my favorite question of the show. Chuma transferring? <laughs> that's the whole I'm question. Say, that's the whole question. It's the best. I'm going to say um, Exodus1. Read the board. I mean, listen to us. I, I don't know, right? Um, well, he wants you to tell him definitively. Oh. He wants you to tell him something that you can't tell him. He's on the team still, Exodus 1. He's still on the roster, okay? <laughs> Remember that. We've gone that line before. He's still on the roster. Uh, we'll see. We I think we've alluded to this multiple times. Uh, we believe he's... He's gone after the year. That's where things are headed. That's what we've been told. Who knows? Yeah, we'll I mean, see. We were told in September that he was planning to. It, it, it doesn't help when he doesn't play. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, he didn't play versus Cal. That was the third time in the last six games where he didn't play. But we won't, we won't have that answer uh, until it's official. And it ain't official yet. So Exodus 1, thank you so much for your question. Wish we were mind readers and or had a press release in our hand. 
Redondo Beach SC is next. Another good friend of the show, I would say. Um, his question's a little bit angry. Why just not? Read it. Let's go just for read it. it. Is Ronnie Bradford as bad of a recruiter as our recent decommits and misses would suggest? Few people have mentioned that the staff may have cooled on Jalen Johnson a bit, possibly due to the shoulder injury slash surgery. Okay, my answer. Um, I, I don't know if Ronnie Bradford is a bad recruiter. I don't know this. I will openly question what USC is doing with the secondary. Um, I'm not going to bag on any commits that they have. I know a couple of them are projects in the secondary or, or ranked that way at least. And uh, the people are upset about that. Um, I like to assume when a program like USC goes after a two- or three-star defensive back, they know what they're doing. So I'm, I'm just going to talk about the guys that they've missed on or had and decommitted. I think it's silly that they had Thomas Graham stop talking to him, and he decommitted, and they're still not talking to him. I think that's ridiculous. I think he's a great cornerback uh, out west. I think USC needs cornerbacks. I think they should be recruiting him. Uh, Bubba Bolden, I think it's ridiculous that they had that guy committed. Uh, really high caliber safety, in my opinion, and he decommitted. Um, they need that guy. They need guys from Bishop Gorman in Las Vegas. They don't have that many guys. They need more of them. Uh, I think they should have Bubba Bolden. They need safeties in this class, and he's a good one, and they had him, and he got away. Uh, I think that's silly. I think Jalen Johnson is arguably the best cornerback uh, on the West Coast and maybe in the country. I think that USC needed him. If they did cool on him, which I doubt uh, highly because I think uh, so highly of him and I couldn't see USC, who needs cornerbacks, possibly cooling on him, uh, then they're stupid. If that's what happened, then they're stupid. It's it's not what happened. I think that that's just one of those sour grapes things that people always go, well, USC didn't want him anyway. Yeah, they've never missed on anybody. They didn't want anybody right. that, that didn't choose USC. Yeah, okay? you have to think no, about honestly. where that narrative comes from because I could think of a, uh, <laughs> of a fan cutter too who every time USC can get their guy, they basically, you know, they tear down that player and and put it all on, on him why he ended up not committing to USC. So. And for especially for someone like Jalen Johnson, it, it's really silly because he's they rivals could rank him as a five-star, and I wouldn't question it. He's that good, and USC needs cornerbacks. So if that is what happened, if USC cooled on him and stopped recruiting him, they are stupid. That's how I will answer that. So you have one of two things. They didn't want him and they're stupid, or they missed on him and it's a problem. So it's not good either yeah. way. Yeah, but no no smear campaign necessary on Jalen Johnson. Who no, stuck. Scott, Scott Schrader believed that, given that you know it's October and sunny days in February, that USC is still in there for him. And he usually has a, a pretty good feel on these things. Um, I know he was surprised that Jalen ended up committing to Utah. So, uh, Schrader just might be off on this one. But, there is a lot of time. And, I I really believe that the way USC started this season really hurt them in recruiting in the fall. 
I mean, they're, they're recruiting seasons going on, and fall is important. It's not the most important one. It's the winter. But I think that they're having to play catch-up. On the field, obviously, but also off the field. Because their reputation took a hit when they were 1-3. and And everyone's talking about the head coach possibly getting fired. People don't want to commit to that school. Yeah, I I think that hurt them. I also think, and Jalen Johnson actually told Adam Gorney this, that he was concerned um, that USC didn't seem to play young defensive backs that much. You mentioned that Jackie Jones doesn't play. I think when you have a guy like Clancy Pendergast that doesn't like to rotate um, that much, I know it's improved recently, but early on it definitely wasn't there, and you keep telling recruits that they could have a role early, eventually it's going to hurt you if guys see that that's not happening. I think that played in here. But also, USC still has a chance. Uh, I think, like you mentioned, he is he is taking visits. It's a long way till February. I always say that. So who knows? It could all change. He could end up coming to USC. And then if that does happen, I guess that would just mean that USC cooled on him in October and then decided to recruit him in January and got him. So it, it'll all be good. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Mean, I know you like my little jokes. No, I'm just. Uh, this question has me thinking about a lot of things, and I think people are legitimately concerned about this 2017 class. And I guess I can't blame them. We, you've been saying for over a year now that the 2017 class as a whole, not USC, but in general, was significantly better than the 2016 one. So, well, USC ended up making a late run last year on signing day and ended up with, I believe, was ranked as a 12th rated class. No, it's top 10. Yeah, well, it it was, but if you go back now, I think I I saw it, it dropped a little bit because things happened in the aftermath of Scotty Day. I think it was 12, but either way, between 8 and 12, this one is the one that you'd like to have a stronger class in. It looks maybe more uh, like the 2015 one. I don't know. Maybe not as as strong as that one. That seems like it was a, a heavyweight year in high school football. No, I agree with you, though. Um, okay. There's more defensive linemen out west in this one, like in 2015, yeah. which I think for USC is a big deal. That helps their class take that jump to really elite status if they get a couple of defensive linemen. Yeah. You have all those skilled players anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's the, kind of different. Because they were still filling out their roster last year, or this past year, I, I knew that the 2016 class was driven by need more than anything, and they they dropped the ball with defensive linemen. They needed a couple more, although I don't know that the freshman defensive linemen would have stepped in and had a great impact on the team, but they, they did need to bring in more defensive linemen and less receivers. They didn't need to bring in five. They could have brought in three, and that would have been more than enough. But this next one, now that they are dealing with a full deck, and they won't even be able to. They don't even have room to bring in twenty-five. I think that it's important 
that while they also like they they're gonna fill needs and they're obvious, but they also have room to to really go after the top players and, and really pursue them. They need to get some top twenty, top thirty guys in this class. Even at a position where maybe they have enough and they're adding an extra one. It would be worth it in this class. I agree with you, Adam. I will say this, that no matter how things finish for USC, I expect them to have a great class this year, and I expect it to be a class that a coaching staff, one of the better coaches in in the country, someone like that, could win a title with a class like this one, or and even the ones you know in previous years. I think a couple of years back, uh, mm-hmm. USC's recruiting. Mm-hmm. You know, people might be concerned about it, um, but it's not the issue. They have enough. They had the staff. They have enough. Yeah, if they had this exactly, if they had the staff, they would win much more. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Okay. Thank you, Redondo Beach SC, for the question. Come back for more. We're on to David Law. David Law, a real old friend. Yeah. We have a lot of old friends now. It's nice. Okay. Hi, boys. Hi, David. One post with three questions. Why not? That's what we do. Okay, we'll do one at a time. Which non-seniors do you expect not to be back next year? Let's start there. Expect Juju, and then I don't expect a Dory either way. I can't say expect him to come back. I don't expect him to leave. I just don't know. I think he could come back. Uh, he, he said quite a few things and done quite a few things that would indicate that he would be happy coming back. But this is before the season began. He played so well that <laughs> he's improving his draft stock with, you know, every game. And I've always felt like if he could play himself into the top half of the first round, or maybe the top 20, then he'll be hard-pressed to come back. But uh, maybe he won't, because he's not a real big guy. And it's rare that players his size get drafted that high in the draft. So, if if he's going to be a second round guy or any of the first round then he might feel like I why not come back and not even so much to improve his draft stock but because it won't really change and he loves being at USC he's a different guy and uh, almost a nerd <laughs> in, in a good way you know but he just he uh, he has a lot of interest outside of football, and um, I could see him coming back to USC. And that's it. I don't expect anybody else. Um, not, well, I guess, okay, Max Brown. I, I wasn't really thinking of him right now, but I don't expect him to be back. He's a non-senior, technically. What about Chuma Adoga? Well, that's a whole different thing. I, I don't think, I don't, 
I didn't yeah. know that we were being accurate. I mean, if we are, I think he's talking, talking about, about drafts. Yeah, I, I was thinking more of the draft, um, but there's always a player or two that will transfer, um, or almost always. Did anybody transfer last year? I don't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, actually, now that I think about it, I don't know that anyone did. Uh, uh, what about, um, oh my gosh, the cornerback who went to Georgia Tech? No, that was the year before. That was the year before, okay, yeah. sorry. Coming out of the 2015 season, I don't believe anybody did. You had Connor Spears, he stopped playing, Alex Wood. These guys were walk-ons that, you know, that contributed. But, yeah, I mean, maybe nobody transferred, but I I would bet, you know, you you, you expect that one player would. Um, and there's but, always a surprise entry into the draft as well. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know who it would be. Do you, do you see a guy? Right now, I mean. No, but do you ever name, see? But do you even see it possible? Like two years ago, I thought that George Farmer might do that, and I asked him about it after that Notre Dame game because I thought he might do it, and then he said, "No, I'm not doing that." And then a month later, he did it. But it, I wasn't shocked because he just seemed like a candidate to do it. Among the yeah. the redshirt sophomores and true juniors and redshirt juniors I don't I mean like do you see one of the linemen leaving no I don't see anybody but that's why it's a surprise I guess right yeah but uh, we don't think so okay let's move on to his next question is Darnold as calm and in control as he seems on the field? It looks like nothing bothers him. I'm going to say yes, but I'll let you elaborate on that, Adam because I'm sure that you have a much longer answer for him. Yeah, no, on, <laughs> on everything. Um, I I think so. Um, he he's been like that since I've known him. Going back to high school, he's kind of a a quiet, reserved, laid-back kid. Um, where, like him and Brown, they have a friendship and they spend a lot of time together and they would both joke around with each other uh, about their friendship or w- with the media. But, um, well, Brown, I would describe in a somewhat similar manner. He could get fiery and he could get loud and authoritative. Darnold doesn't really communicate that way. You know, he's just a little bit more measured. And um, Tyson was saying how Darnold will approach players one-on-one if something's happening. You know, he's never really uh, making announcements. And he this, again, I have to make sure I make this point. He wasn't. He wasn't comparing Darnold to Brown. So when I say that Darnold's this way, it doesn't mean that Brown's the other way. I'm not really talking about Brown. I only brought up Brown because we did see Brown get vocal 
um, and get emotional. Uh, it, we we hadn't seen it from him the last couple of years because he hadn't played. But when he was competing for the job and when he did have the job, that part of his personality came out, and he really seemed to be a, a leader on the team. So and uh, you know he had some strong traits that you like from a quarterback. Darnold is almost a little bit abnormal, I would say, where, again, he'll approach people, uh, he has maybe a kind of a softer voice, and I don't know, he's just not your, your average quarterback in, in, in terms of personality. You don't know if he's uh, playing well or not. And uh, I'm actually going to I'm gonna put up an article on the board this week. I meant to do it last week, and I forgot. I wrote a feature about Darnold a few years ago when he was in high school. It was before USC was actually recruiting him. And uh, it, it really kind of, I thought it it gives you it, it, a peek into, like, the way he is. You know, just his uh, sensibility. And I, I, I'd forgotten that I'd written it. I knew I'd wrote, written something about him a few years back, but I couldn't remember what it was about, and then someone came upon it, and they, they shared it with me, <laughs> my article. And so I wanted to share that with you guys, because I think I think you'll find it interesting. And I think it, it'll tell you, uh, it kind of, you know, it covers some of the ground. It'll tell you a little bit more about him than I'm, than I'm probably doing right now. Awesome. Okay. Let's let's go to the third question of David Law's three questions. Aside from Darnold, oh, he took that away from us. That was an easy one on this list. Who are your top three pleasant surprises of 2016? You want me to start, Adam? Yeah, I, think I just I'll talked start. for ten minutes. Yeah, I'll start. I'll take a Dory Jackson uh, budding into a superstar. We all knew the potential was there, but last year, I think there were some questions about his uh, development and where he was going, and now I think he's one of the best players in the country, so I'm going to say that that is one of the the most pleasant surprises for this USC team. Um, I'm going to say Cam Smith bouncing back from injury so well and playing at such a high level, not missing a beat, and being the exact same guy. Uh, I think that was huge. For USC, I think they needed him to do that this year, and uh, he's done it. He's been um, the same old Cam Smith, in my opinion, if not even better. And then last but not least, and I'm sure that there's some debate for this uh, one that's on the fence. There's a couple others that stick out to me, like maybe improved safety play, uh, maybe Justin Davis locking down the top running back spot before getting hurt. But I'm going to go, oh, maybe the tight end play. I should mention that too. But I'm going to go with Darius Rogers because uh, he's made uh, you know a couple big plays this year, uh, more than I think I would have expected him to make. And he also sealed a win for USC against Colorado. I wouldn't have expected, you know, before the season, Darius Rogers to be a guy that we were talking about, you know, sealing a win for USC uh, in a must-win game against, uh, you know, a Pac-12 division foe that they needed to beat. So I'm going to say Darius Rogers is my third pleasant surprise. He's been a really good number two receiver and has made a lot of huge plays for USC this year. Okay. Well, I like that pick. And it definitely crossed my mind. I, I'm going to be a little bit stubborn with him because 
I really thought this is what he was capable of all along and never had the opportunity. But the point you made about him making a couple plays that you didn't expect, um, I feel the same way. Um, I think he's shown a little bit more athleticism than even we've seen on the practice field. Where usually you can maybe see the best of someone. Because he does work hard in practice. And sometimes you might shine in, in that setting and then on game day you're absent. But he's actually taking it to another level with a few of the plays that he's made in games. So I like that pick. Um, I'm going to try to find three more. My first one is Stevie Tui Kolovatu, who was really a bit of a mystery. We heard fairly good things, but at the end of the day, he was a backup at Utah. And, and Utah typically has a good defensive line, but how good is the, the backup at Utah going to be at USC? Well, he's been their best defensive lineman. I didn't know that that would happen. And it, it happened quickly, and so now people are probably moving on from that development. But that was not something that I anticipated coming into the year, that he would be the guy. That he, that, he, that he hasn't been. So, start with him. Number two would be Leon McQuay. He's played really good at safety. Um, I like the way both him and Chris Hawkins are playing. I think uh, between the two of them, this is the best safety play that they've gotten since probably 2013 when Clancy was there before. Um, safety has been a, a bit of a problem position the last couple of years. But um, I, I like the way that Clancy uses McQuay um, and, and really puts him, has him playing you know, near the line of scrimmage a lot more. I think that plays into his strengths. He's a really athletic guy that can cover a lot of ground. So um, I'm going to go with him. And then I don't know if I have a number three. I mean... I probably would say Justin Davis, um, who I, I call him Mr. Underrated, and I'm guilty of it myself. I thought that this was going to be Rojo's year, and he was just going to run past him because of how talented I think Rojo is. But Justin had, had really been a rock for the offense before getting injured. And don't forget about him. You know, now's the time where people might a little bit and, and perhaps we'll see that from the USC opponents but Justin is very very important to this team and just imagine what they could be if both Justin and Rojo are on I mean I, I, I think that could be the best tandem in the nation if they're both playing if they're both playing at their best they, ha they haven't really done it at the same time Rojo, I mean, Justin's been good basically the whole year. He didn't have a great opener, but since then he's played great football and then he went down. And now Rojo's picking it up and coming off his career best game. So you get both of them going and, uh, you know, I felt like this team needed to be passed first because of the way of running the ball in the, the first half of the year. And now... They're becoming what Clay wanted them to be, where they control the game with the run. And I, 
they should be able to do that versus Gorgon. You know, the, the million dollar question is whether they can do that versus Washington. But I, I think they had the running back to do it. <laughs> and the offensive line was dominant versus Cal. And they had a great month. So I'm, I'm not going to say that they won't do it versus Washington. I, I'm going to give them a chance. But I think that it's going to come down to them more than Rojo and Justin, whether they whether USC can control the game on the ground. Uh, do you do you? How often do you wash this uh, Rojo jersey that you're wearing all the time? <laughs> what are you talking about? Is it every few days that you wash this jersey? <laughs> Just wondering. Okay, whatever. Thank you, David Law. Whatever. We appreciate your question. We love you, David Law. On to another old friend, Fatty McButterpants. I wonder if he has a schedule question. Oh, look, he has a schedule question. <laughs> the The past four games were easy to predict as the softest part of the schedule. I agree, Fatty. However, it appears there has been genuine improvement with this team and, more importantly, improvement with the coaching decisions. So how much do you think this team has genuinely improved and how much has been scheduled? Would you favor this team right now on a neutral field over every team in the conference outside of Washington? Adam, would you like to take this one first? Yeah. I think there is more genuine improvement than people are giving them credit for and more than... I know Chris will give them credit for when he answers <laughs> next. Because if they hadn't improved, they wouldn't win these games by 20 and 30 points. They would still win them, but they would be in a tight game. And uh, they wouldn't have beaten Colorado if they hadn't improved. So I think there's a, a good amount of genuine improvement. I think that being able to play lesser opponents can allow you to improve. It's really hard to improve when you're playing Alabama. You know, if they played Alabama every week, that improvement would be minimal. So, uh, most people open the year with a schedule even easier than what USC had in October. Realize that. That October run that they just went on while it was the soft part of their schedule, was still tougher than what a lot of people play in September. So, I think the improvement is real, but it's always going to look maybe a, a bit inflated by by a soft schedule. I don't think that if, if you flipped it around and they played the October team in September and then the September teams in October, they would necessarily beat Utah by 25 and beat Stanford by 20 and, you know, have uh, be in a, a dogfight with Alabama. I, I'm not ready to say that yet. I think that um, we, we still have to see more from the coaching staff to to really believe that they would beat the better teams in the country. Alabama's still number one. Utah's still 
a ranked team who just went toe-to-toe with Washington, and before that, they were a yard away from being undefeated. So, I, I still think that's a, a hard game for USC. And, and Stanford was probably intimidating to them, more than anything. And they were effective at doing one thing. So, I, I don't mean to rehash the whole thing here, but... Um, I felt like they were severely outcoached in those games. And maybe as much as outplayed. I don't feel like they were badly outplayed versus Utah. I feel like they were outcoached. And Stanford, I feel like they were really outcoached. Right? And, and Alabama, obviously, they were both outplayed, outcoached. So um, the coaching is where, you know, how much have they improved? It's harder to tell. I'm not trying to be too hard on the coaches. I know it's probably going to come off that way. But I think in November, we should learn a little bit more about the coaching too. I think that's a, a great opportunity for them to show where they what they've learned and what strides they've made. I'll leave it at that. Um, the other question about would I favor the team on a neutral field? I would. I would I would favor them versus anyone but Washington in the Pac twelve on a neutral field. Wow, Adam. They're gonna call you the voice of reason again after I answer because <laughs> uh I feel a little bit differently than you. I think there has been improvement. Uh I don't think you can question that. I actually though, um unlike you, I think that they're getting too much credit for the improvement because the teams they've played have been so bad, some of them, that USC could have just ran the ball 80 straight times without throwing it and have probably gone out there with a 14-point win. So, to me, the schedule's making the improvement look, you know, vast and great, and I'm not sure that it is. There is improvement. I'm not going to say that. They have improved. I just don't know how much they've improved. I'm not ready to say that they've improved greatly, which I know a lot of people uh, are ready to say that. Um, so I guess I don't know. There has been improvement. I don't know how much. That's how I'd answer that question. As for the question of... Uh, who I would favor them to beat in the conference on a neutral field. They're, they're, uh, I would think that I would favor USC to beat every team in the Pac-12 on a neutral field besides Washington, Utah, and Stanford. Um, to me, Utah is a better record. They're a better team. They beat USC if I was picking that game. I'm still picking Utah. I, I just am. Um there's no, it doesn't feel like a fluke loss to me. It feels like Utah is a really good team that beat USC. So I would pick Utah still. I'd pick Washington for obvious reasons. And I'd pick Stanford um, because football's a game of matchups. It's a matchup thing. Um, USC's been handling teams that can't challenge them up front. Stanford challenged USC up front, and they kicked USC's ass up front, to, to just say it honestly. That game wasn't even close. So yeah. I know that Stanford's fallen apart. I know their record doesn't look that good now and that other teams have beaten them that you know maybe aren't as good as USC even. I get all that. I watched that game, though, 
and I saw Stanford just absolutely own the line of scrimmage. I'm not convinced that USC would own the line of scrimmage in this game. I'm not convinced that that Stanford wouldn't. Uh, I don't think that game would be very much different up front. So if I was picking with a gun to my head and a neutral site, I'd still pick Stanford. Yeah, I, I understand why. I mean, Stanford practically ran the same play over and over, and USC knew it was coming, and they couldn't stop it. And they've tried that with other teams, and other teams are, are shutting down or containing Christian McCaffrey. But USC was incapable of doing that. It really is hard to understand why they had such a hard time with him. I mean, they I weren't that creative. They, in that game, they were not that creative. They only threw 15 times. They, yeah. they, they don't, they don't have any great weapons on offense other than him. So I, I honestly feel like it's, it's an issue of uh, depth along the defensive line for USC. Yeah. I don't think they can beat teams like that. I think that the USC can beat really good teams that aren't like that, but I'm not sure they can even beat above-average teams that are built that way. Right. If USC had two or three other defensive linemen, I think they'd kill Stanford. But to me, it just looks like they don't have the bodies to put in the box to yeah. win that game. You, That's all. That's yeah, it. Know, That's you, the only reason. You know what, remind, like, what this reminds me of is Boston College. You a know, little bit, yeah. I right? Get, I get it. Yeah. yeah. It's the same thing, where Boston College shouldn't be able to beat USC, but because they can win in this one way, USC can't really deal with it. And I know that was a different head coach and a different coordinator and a, a different roster, but, I mean, that roster had Sula Cravens and Leonard Williams. They just aren't built to defend that so yep I, I understand your logic there yeah so I I believe USC is a more talented team than Stanford I believe they'll probably end up being considered a better team I just don't think they win that game I yeah. just don't think they can win that game so, I get it and I, I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to that game next year I mean not because McCaffrey will be gone but because uh, I'd like to see Darnold in that game, I, because where Stanford might be able to bully USC, I also think Darnold will put up points, and you might—they might find themselves in a back and forth game. They have had a couple of them, um, haven't felt like it with Helton, but going back to last year in September, Stanford won forty-one to thirty-one, and that one played out more like I would expect it to play out next year. Not so much with Stanford winning by that score, but just where Stanford can do what it wants, but then USC, you know, has a more open offense and, you know, they're able to move the ball. They, they, they couldn't do anything versus Stanford back in, uh, in September of this year. That was a total dud. But I think with Darnold, they'll, they'll be different. We'll see. Yeah. I know Fatty McButterpants agrees with you, or at least I think he does. Thank you, Fatty McButterpants, for your questions. They were great. We loved them. On to our final post, I guess I should say. Ah, I think it's one question. I think it's one question. Final Final question. Braxton family 
times four, X4, whatever it is. <laughs> Another old friend, thank you so much. Braxton Family asks, do you like the approach of playing more older, experienced players or letting young, talented players get on the field and get experience before they are 100% mentally ready? Example, I assume the old staff would have Jack Jack Jones playing a lot more, most likely over a Jane Harris and Jonathan Lockett. This staff seems to be putting a premium on experience and smarts. I like our older players playing a lot. What do you think? I will jump on this one first. Yeah. I'm of the mind that uh, the best player plays, no matter what the age is. I always have felt like that is a good philosophy. However, that being said, USC gets a lot of talent. So in a vacuum, I have to assume that many times, not always, because sometimes the older players stay around and the young, talented ones leave early. I understand that. But a lot of times, these older players are as talented as some of these younger guys that are coming in. So from my point of view... I usually lean towards the older guy. That's just me. For example, I believe you brought this up in this show. It might have been our last podcast. I know it was recently. Brought up Biggie Marshall playing over Kevon Seymour last year, how that didn't make sense to you. I don't like that because I think that they are very comparable talent-wise. And so I would have leaned towards Kevon Seymour, who I feel like is older, more experienced, and probably more fit. Uh, to be the starter. So if all things seem even, I go with the older guy. Um, always. And so I'm with Braxton family on this one. I agree, I guess. But I think sometimes, you know, that younger guy is just more talented. And we probably don't know that based on, you know, what we really uh, use to judge talent. But outside of the eyeball test at practice, you know, these recruiting rankings, everybody at USC seems like they're really talented. So it's hard to judge sometimes. I get it when a staff member goes to a younger guy. I get that philosophy, but all things in a vacuum, all things even, I guess I'm leaning towards the older player most of the time. Yeah, well, I think it it can't be black and white. There are a lot of positions on the field where you really have to rotate people if you're going to remain effective. I think about the defensive line, and if you keep the same three, four guys out there for 12 plays in a row, then by the end of it, they're getting eaten up. And it's not serving you well at all to to leave them out there every play and then bring them right back out for another long series. And I think that's what happened in that Utah game where they finished the game with three long drives. And it was very methodic. Because they weren't rotating. And it wasn't just the defensive line. You know, defense in general, people need to come out. The nature of that of that, of that, that side of the ball and playing those positions, you're exerting so much to stop the other team from doing what they want or what they're trying to do that it's almost like a turbo in a video game. Where you use a big portion of it, and then you have to like wait a little bit for it to refill. You can't just stay on turbo the whole time. It's very different from offense, where a lot of players, because of the momentum and and just the the positive outcome of the play, one after another, they're able to just keep going. 
you know, and so that that's why I think you're able to see an offensive lineman go play after play if they're winning, it winning each play. That is, so I think that you just need to play more people. That that's where I'm starting with. In terms of like maybe who's starting and who's playing more of the game, then. I agree with Chris. I think you go with the better player. I I don't care as much about their class, but if a guy has already shown you how good he is and how productive he is, then I'm not necessarily pulling him for this really talented freshman who hasn't played yet. At the same time, if we're talking about the second half or the fourth quarter of a game in which you're winning or losing by maybe three possessions or more, then I'm unloading the bench. I'm getting Jungle out of there and Rojo out of there or Justin Davis, you know, Juju. All of my, my frontline guys, they have plenty to work with now. They're, they're at home, so when, when they're not traveling, you know, they have everyone. And they, they no longer are, you know, one or two deep at every spot. You, you have 12, 13 receivers that you can pull from. So I, I realize that they're redshirting some of them. But in the fourth quarter, you can play Isaac Whitney and Jaquan Hampton, who are both seniors. And you can use your your backup tight end more and your backup offensive lineman. So I I don't really care for the way that they're doing this. But I'm talking about managing the game. I'm not talking about who's starting or who's getting the majority of the snaps. I, I just feel like you need to prepare people like Achille Ross to be ready for next year. He might have to play a lot next year. And how ready will he be for that? From what he's done this year. So th- there's not a lot ready. of people... Yeah, he's not, he's not ready. There's a lot of people like that. And, and Jack Jones... You know, let's say it is about his, uh, I haven't even heard this before, that he's not totally, uh, he doesn't have a good handle on the playbook. But let's say that he was still trying to figure that out a little bit. Now, if you bring him in and he just gives up a touchdown, that's one thing. But that, that hasn't happened. So far, what he's done in there, he's done fine. So we're left to believe that he's not playing because... They believe the, the guys ahead of him are better than him. That might be true. We can't rule that out. But that doesn't mean don't play him at all or only play him on the final drive of the game. I don't. I don't think these guys are major liabilities. I just think that they're not getting that opportunity to play, and it, it's kind of weird to me because this isn't the NFL where you're going to 
turn over your roster from year to year and you're going to just bring in all these free agents. Really, the only people that you can count on bringing in are high school seniors. That's who you're going to bring in. So they're probably not as good as the true freshmen or the redshirt freshmen or redshirt sophomores that you have that are on your bench. I would be playing them. I agree, Adam. I always agree with you. And just like that, it's like we used up all the uh, the energy in our little video game energy bar with the turbo button. <laughs> with the end of Braxton Miller's question, we're through it, Braxton Adam. Miller. We're done. Wow, we had a celebrity guest. Oh, did I call him Braxton Miller? Yeah, I did, you did. Didn't I? I like Braxton, Filler, Braxton Miller, Braxton Family Times 4. I get well, tired. the Braxton Family, the we're assuming. Braxton Miller is a part of the Braxton family, isn't yeah, he? The sure. guys that the Braxton family with all first names of Braxton, that family. Right. Anyway, it's been a long show. I'm tired. I apologize. Adam apologizes for me. We're wrapping <laughs> up for Adam Maya, for Chris Morales in case he's around. I never really find out if he is. I'm Chris Swanson. Sign up for Trojansports.com if you don't already. I'm going to slip that in there. It's pretty cheap. You should check it out. It's fun. You can ask a question, uh, too, for the uh, for this podcast if you are a member. So sign up. And with all that, I guess I'll say good night. So good night, everybody. Thanks for participating. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. We love you. And take care. Happy Halloween. Bye. Thank you. And yes, indeed. That's going to do it for the Message Board Show. Questions from the message board at Trojan Talk. They're at Trojansports.com. Thank you to Adam J. Maya, Chris P. Swanson. We will be back in just a few days with our preview show, the one I host, that will take a look and get you ready for USC, Oregon, Saturday at the Coliseum, 4 p.m., homecoming for the Trojans. And let's hope is an easy win. Two, point, uh, two touchdown favorite as it goes right now, thanks to our friends in Vegas, for entertainment purposes only, of course. All right. Uh, if you're not subscribing, you know what to do. Go to Trojansports.com. Cheaper than two cups of Starbucks coffee in your week. Get all the information you crave. Be able to partake on the boards. Be able to ask questions. Be able to go to war with Chris Swanson. Why not? For me, Chris Morales. For Adam I, Chris Swanson. Have a good Wednesday, everybody. And we'll talk to you soon. Trojansports.com.